Thank you, Jaris. Appreciate you coming and sharing that with us. I think it's important that we support our student ministers. And so if you can do that, if the Lord's blessed you above and beyond and you can help underwrite the rest of that trip, anything extra will go to medical supplies and to help others be able to come. And so uh, it will be well, uh, well funded if you help. And so uh, let me encourage you, if you didn't get that QR code out in the foyer, you can find a card that has that on there that can help you underwrite what's going on there. What he says we'll do, where he sends we'll go, never fear, only trust and obey, right? That's what we just got through saying, wasn't it? And so um, let's get behind that, if you would. It's uh, good to be with you today. I'm Kurt Parker. Let's turn in our copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we're going to be there for just a few minutes, and then we're going to be on into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So those are two spots. I'd like you to make sure you have your Bible out. It's important as we study through it that you're in it. Of course, it's important to be in it every day. I encourage you and regularly remind you and pray for you regularly that you're in the Word each day. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a man or a woman or a student keep his way pure by keeping it according to your Word? If you want to walk in holiness, if you want to make sure you don't make mistakes in your life, then you're going to have to be in the Word every day. So let me encourage you to do that. Uh, you can find a trifold there in the foyer where you can uh, work through the Bible in a year. You can go to Version, download that app. That'll take you through the Bible in a year. Apply yourself to its reading, its understanding. It's given to us for your enrichment and for your, uh, for your blessing to equip you for every good work. So be a part of that, all right? In the last two weeks, we have been looking at a section of our study that deals with the topic of relating to those who lead the church. In particular, the first two verses of 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. I'd like you to read through that passage with me as it's been our, our home base for the last couple of weeks. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and we'll read through verse 18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And we saw... Uh, that when the church uses the right matrix, as we looked at that passage, to measure the life of the elder or the pastor who lead, it line, and it lines up well, these as elders and pastors, Paul said, were to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that was our first principle uh, in our, our passage, which had to deal with how to deal with elders, and that's the first stop is with honor. Now, I will say this just as a, uh, as a caveat, it is, as I told you when we first started this study, it's awkward for me to be up here teaching you how to take care of elders when I'm one. But because it is where we are, it's what we have to teach through. So understand that I'm not saying one thing and hoping for another. I have no preconceived idea of what uh, I want you to do. You fully take care of me. I'm not grinding an ax. I don't have an agenda. It's not a conflict of interest. And so I say all that to say that you're going to hear a lot of things here today that we're going to go through. These things are important for us to know. And because they're in the passage that we're in, we have to deal with them. So there's, uh, there's my disclaimer. I'm not uh, looking at you and thinking something. I'm not thinking something about myself as I teach it. It's just what we're teaching. All right. Now let's... Um, Let's get back into it. That, that first stop was principle number one. The first way the church, according to Paul, is to deal with an elder is with honor. And then we looked at the question, what is honor? What does it mean to honor the elders who are qualified to do their jobs well according to biblical guidelines? Because it's not subjective. It's subjective. What does it look like to do the job well? And we saw that that word honor is the Greek noun teammate. We saw it used really in two ways in the, in the New Testament. The first we saw it's used in terms of respect and regard. So it's to respect or regard highly those who are over you in the church. And the second 
Uh, and we looked at a number of scriptural illustrations about that, and I won't go back through any of that. You can go online and check all that out if you missed it. And the other way the word teme is used has to do with money or remuneration. And the Bible says that he is worthy of double honor, and we saw literally that just means twofold honor. Um, and so the Bible only uses the word teammate two different ways. One is to show respect, and the other is to show remuneration. And I gave you all those background scriptures to help you understand all of that. And that is a clear and consistent understanding of the early church fathers. It's been all messed up today in some of the modern commentaries, but that really is where I think it lands very solidly in sound doctrine. Now, it says this. It uh, gives this specific uh, uh, direction. It says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that word work hard is just one word in the Greek, uh, kopiao. It's a present active participle. So it is the habit then to work to the point of being wearied, to do something exhausting. And, and it, here it becomes the standard. The ministry of the word is to be an exhaustive effort. And it uses two words to describe it, preaching and teaching. That word preaching, by the way, is the word logo. It just means to speak. It really, in context, it has to do with men preaching and repeating a direct mandate from God to respond. And so the idea will always be, uh, what is that, how does that apply to me? After you get done through teaching, whatever the Word of God says, it's making sure people know how to respond to it. The second one is teaching, didascalia, that's the noun that has really translated doctrine, uh, things that the Word of God says, those instructions, those precepts, those are the things that guard people against error. And so the one who stands in the pulpit is supposed to do both of those things. Uh, and that's how they're supposed to be done. These are doctrines that guard you against error. You don't get to make up new teachings. You don't get to make it more palatable. You don't get to do any of those things. You take what is written and you deliver it so that they will know how to respond. And those are the two things that are supposed to be working together all the time for those who are teaching the church how to do works of service. And so that was principle number three. As we thought about all of this, we saw that all elders who do a good job, and that's not subjective again, that's objective. We have clearly from the Word of God what it looks like, that measuring rod, because I've told you before and showed you from the Word of God, most of the time the measuring rod that the church uses for those who are over them is not a biblical one. But we have some biblical ones, and we've looked at them very carefully. Paul says, listen, all elders who do a good job overseeing the church are worthy of honor in both these aspects, but especially, it says, recognize those who work hard at these most important things of preaching and teaching. So that was very clear, I think, as we finished up last time. Paul says, take care of them. And then he gets to verse 18, and he uses a pretty clear example from the Old Testament that we've looked at before. So look at verse 18. It says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so what Paul does here is he quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And because these two verses really rely very heavily on some important background information, what I did last time is I just put a pause right here and we move to a place where he thoroughly helps us understand this passage. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So I'd like you to turn there now, if you would. Just, uh, we'll be there for a while, so just go ahead and flip over. Make sure you can read with me. Not all of it will be on the screen. And here what we're going to have is uh, an understanding of verse 18 and we'll pull our principles about understanding what it means uh, to not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the labor is worthy of his wages. We'll understand that by the principles found here where Paul deals with it very exhaustively. And sometimes that's important as you work your way through the Word of God. You might have an abbreviated statement in one portion which requires some background. And so you'll have to stop there for a second. Otherwise, people will go away with an unclear idea or perhaps an error 
of what that actually means. And so you can go to other parts of the Bible and the Bible explains the Bible. And so it helps us to understand that. Now look at uh, verse 1. And I'm just going to read part of this and then we're going to begin to comment on it because we got a little ways into it last time and I don't want to uh, belabor the points. But look at verse 1. It says this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now what we have there, I'm going to pause right there. I'm not going to read all the way through uh, all 18 verses. We did that last time. But we're going to work through those verses here now and kind of give you the summary of how Paul is helping these uh, folks to understand what's supposed to happen. But what's happening here, and you can read ahead if you've got your Bible open, Paul uses the first 14 verses to give the reasons why he had the freedom to choose to be supported by the church. And we looked at some of those last time. And then here in chapter 9, Paul is going to illustrate this freedom to limit your freedom. And, and we, we come away, though, with the principles for supporting a pastor or a missionary or a minister. Because the question comes up a lot more than you may think. And a lot of times these questions are asked, what should we do? How much should we do? Should we do it? And so this helps clarify all of that and helps clarify First Timothy chapter 5, which is our verse-by-verse uh, passage we're going through right now. Now, Paul says this, I'm qualified to understand freedom in Christ, right? He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And so then Paul says, as an apostle, don't I have liberty? And of course, the answer is, yes, you do. You have liberty to choose to do or not to choose to do certain things that are open for that choice. And Paul says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Look at verse 3. So he's addressing questions from the church in Corinth. And, and we don't get the direct questions from the church, but in the answers, you can see Paul uh, give us an idea of what's happening. But this is a church that's very impertinent towards Paul, very critical, uh, very undermining and accusatory. And so this is how they've been. And Paul's had to deal with them all along in this same way. And so you're going to see that same tenor as they ask the questions to him. And you can see there's, there's a big problem with them about what they need to do with Paul. And that's all going to come out. So look at verse 4, if you would. Paul says to the church, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Now look at verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Paul says, listen, um, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? And what's the answer? Yes, I do. Uh, but you can hear the question from the church. The question is, shouldn't you just take care of yourself? Why should we be burdened? And, and Paul's answer is, I have needs just like you do. And I have the right to ask you to care for them. And that's a relevant principle for the church today. And then in verse 5, their question criticism was likely this. Uh, can't you just stay single? Uh, you're much more useful to us that way. We can get a lot, of more, a lot more mileage out of you if you're a single guy. And so Paul's answer is, listen, I have the right to support from you, not only for me, but for a family if I wanted one. Paul says, that's my liberty. That's my right to ask that of you. And that's a relevant principle for today as well. It is the church's responsibility, we saw last time, to support its pastors, its missionaries, its ministers, its staff. And then we get to verse 6. And the question or the criticism from the Corinthian church is kind of a repeat, but in a different way. Again, very impertinent. It says, why can't you just work and take care of yourself? You can make a good living as a tanner, and you have made a good living as a tanner up to now. And so Paul's response is this. Is it just Barnabas and I that need to keep working? So obviously there's some double standard somewhere. There are some guys who are serving in the ministry and they don't have to work, but they're requiring or, or at least 
implying that Paul and Barnabas should just keep on working in the church, not be burdened. And again, that's a great principle for today, and I think you can see that. Now, look at verse 7. Paul starts with some examples. This is the first example he gives, and he's going to really build his argument. He's already stated some very clear, uh, categorical answers to questions, and then he's going to build this argument in support. And in verse 7, and this is our first example, he says this, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? There's the first example. Number two, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? And number three, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So three examples, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. And this is the general idea now behind 1 Timothy chapter 5 and the second half of verse 18 where it says the laborer is worthy of his hire. So what's it mean? It just means that those guys, the soldier, the farmer, the shepherd, uh, they are all working and because they're discharging that labor, they're worthy of remuneration. And so he gives that really as principle number one. It's the usual custom that out of the labor comes the living. And Paul's obvious point is the same holds true for the servant of God. Now look at verse 8. And Paul says a very interesting thing here. He says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? In other words, we all know this. According to human judgment, you know if somebody's working as a soldier, you know if somebody's working as a farmer, you understand if somebody working as a shepherd or any other labor-intensive thing that they should be paid. Paul says everybody knows this. But are we saying this because we just have this human understanding or where did this human understanding come from? And so Paul says that didn't originate with us. Paul says all of our reasoning, all of our understanding is based on God's law and that's exactly the passage Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. He says in verse 9 here, look. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That's precisely what Paul just got through quoting for the church in Ephesus for Timothy, to make sure Timothy could make sure the church understood. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? And what's the answer? It's rhetorical. No, he's not. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, it was written. That's, that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And that was principle number two. God has always been concerned about workmen receiving their wages. That's a long-reaching biblical principle. That's how we know this. Paul says uh, all that very clearly and very well established. He says, this is well known to everyone. It's reasoning everybody can understand. And, and you can see kind of, kind of the same concern. We didn't look at this last time. But if you look at James and chapter 5 and verse 4, you notice what uh, James is writing to the church, to those carnal in the church. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. So what's going on? Somebody's doing some work for someone and then that person is not paying them. So very similar to what we just got through saying just a moment ago. Cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In other words... In this passage, he's condemning someone who could pay, but who didn't pay, the people who had done the work for them, and whoever that, whenever that's done, that's injustice. When you work and somebody doesn't pay you, that's injustice, the Bible says, and that injustice calls out to the Lord. And so again, you see the same idea as Paul's making this very clear principle that everybody knows if you've worked hard, you deserve the pay that you were promised. Now, verse 10, look there. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. 
Because the plowman ought to plow in hope. There's our fifth example. And number six, the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. So two more examples. He said, listen, if you're plowing or if you're, and, and the guys you're planting and the guys you're threshing, uh, they process the harvested grain. Uh, they both have earned their wages. They're worthy of those wages. If they haven't been paid, the Lord finds out about that and it cries out to him. It's injustice. And so principle number three was, uh, the minister should be able to anticipate that just like everyone else out of labor comes reward. Now look at verse 11. And Paul makes a direct application here. So he's building this great argument, helping them understand that we understand all these things about uh, remuneration for people who work. And then he says, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul brings all this right to topic. And he says, in other words, Paul says, and he uses an agrarian metaphor, he says, if we sowed life-transforming, eternal, everlasting, permanent things in you, is it too much to reap material, temporary, monetary passing things from you? And of course, it's rhetorical. Is this example unreasonable? And, and of course, the answer is no, of course. It shouldn't be unreasonable for you to understand this if you can understand every other thing I just got through saying. And so the principle number four then is to be generous. Now look at verse 12. It says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? So there was obviously an example somewhere. Someone was serving the church and they were being taken care of by the church. And so this is happening there. So others were being supported at some level. And because Paul planted this church in Corinth and he was the first pastor and perhaps as a spiritual father for many of them, that's why he says, do we not more share the right? And so what's the point here? It just confirms our understanding that Paul is setting a standard of conduct. So what's shared with Paul? The right to support. Now look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? And that's example number eight. And example number eight here is the Old Testament worship set up this model. And principle number five was, it's always been God's plan that those who do the work of the ministry are to be supported by the ministry. Paul says, this is not new. It's already been set up from of old. And this is what would happen in the old economy. And I gave you a lot of examples last time. I won't go through them again in the sacrificial system. And it, where the priest would perform these duties and out of that sacrifice, part of that came to him to help him with his livelihood. And it, what, it's, what Paul's doing is just reminding them that the Lord set up the support of the priests to come right out of the ministry. And so people will say, well, we're not in the priestly uh, time anymore. It's not a theocracy anymore, and we, we don't have a temple. Right. So Paul makes uh, verse 14 very, very to the point. Look there. He says, so also the Lord directs those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from it. So this is not human reasoning. It's not just an Old Testament proverb. It's not just an example from the tabernacle. This is a very compelling example and a very clear Old Testament worship set up the model, and that's a simple principle that extends still today. Very, very straightforward. Now, Paul gave them reasons from which we extracted principles. It helps us understand verse 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. And verse 12, he says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Mark this, nevertheless, we did not use the right but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And look at the last part of verse 15. But we have used none of these things. Paul says, you know why? We haven't used any of that. 
My love for you limited the exercise of my liberty. I had the right to ask you to do this, but I loved you and I decided that I was going to waive my rights to support. And he says this, he says, we endure all things. So it's not just a minor inconvenience. And that's literally to bear in silence, to bear without complaint. Paul says, we endure whatever we don't have. And it's in the present active indicative. In other words, we continually are enduring. It is our, it is our reality, these things we don't have. He's enduring throughout the current ministry that he has with them, the absence of things that he has the right to and that he no doubt needs. And he says we do that so we provide no hindrance. And that's the Greek noun ingopen. We saw it has, it's, a, it's a wartime word. It has to do with breaking up the road or tearing down bridges or whatever to impede an enemy pursuit or impede an enemy attack. And, and here's the idea. Paul says, look, I wouldn't do anything to chop up a highway or tear down a bridge by which the gospel is advancing to you. And I would, in other words, stop it from advancing to you. I don't want to do anything to make it difficult for you to accept the gospel. And that's why he says, even though I have the right to your support, I don't want you to think that I'm in this for the money. So I set that right aside. So he was willing then to endure whatever it was rather than give up uh, 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 give those who were questioning him, rather, uh, a reason to oppose him or give people a reason not to come to faith. And that was a sad place for the Corinthian church to be. We weren't talking about unbelievers here. We're talking about people in a church, people who should know better. So this is the situation that Paul is in with him. Now, look at the rest of verse 15 because it really carries the same emphasis. Uh, Paul's limit to his freedom. He says, but I have used, he says, None of these things. And mark this, because it really answers the question from last week where I left you. Is this, is what Paul did, consider the norm for the church? In other words, Paul setting aside his right to be paid, is that what the church should automatically assume the minister should do? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Paul just got through making the case. I've excluded that right, even though I've just established it for you. Do you see how important this is? Paul's not going to take it. But he's established this as the pattern for the New Testament church. And that's what he means by these things. I've used none of these things. Everything I've said up till now, everything I've proven to you up till now that is uh, the right for those who lead the church to have, these things I've set aside. But that's not the norm for the church. Now watch, Paul wants to lay the rest of any, accus lay the rest, any accusation or any double talk or subterfuge. He says this, look, he goes, I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. So here what Paul wants to put to rest any accusation of saying one thing and meaning another, which is precisely why I gave you the disclaimer at the very beginning of this message. I don't want you to think I'm giving you this message because I'm saying one thing, but I mean something else. I don't, and neither did Paul. Okay, Paul, Paul says, listen, he already has people who are examining him and from whom he makes a defense from verse 3. He has people who are impertinent all the time, disrespectful all the time. He knows somebody's going to come up and say to him, I know why you're writing all of this stuff, Paul. You're saying, I don't want you to pay me. I wouldn't take anything. I have the right to it, of course, and I want to give you eight examples and five principles, but I won't take any of it. And you're expecting us to say, Oh, come on, Paul, please take it. Oh, okay, if you insist, I'll take it. I don't want to make you feel bad. See? Paul already knows how the church is going to respond, and that's how churches respond still. 
And so it's always in the mix, see? So Paul wants to lay all that aside. He's like, listen, I'm not telling you one thing, hoping you'll do something else. And I think you can see this very clearly as we get to uh, a little deeper in and we begin to wrap this up. Undoubtedly, Paul knows he still have people going to accuse him. They're going to say things, you know, why have you done this, Paul? So why did you go through all of this? Why have you written all of it? And Paul just says, well, I'm not seeking support and I haven't changed my approach one bit. I have the freedom to limit my freedom and I've done it in my, to my own detriment. I've chosen not to require support from you in the past and this is the way I'm going to keep going in the future. Now remember, Paul, Paul's description of, of his ministry, Paul's description of the things that he missed. Uh, remember, he was with Barnabas, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. When we went through this, these two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, we looked at this extensively. But Paul says this about himself and about his ministry to the church in Corinth. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. Right up to the present time, he said. It's my freedom to do this. I don't want it to be any different. I don't expect it to change. I do it this way, but that's the reality, see? That's we endure up until this present time. That's what he means. He does without these kinds of things. And there are lots of examples of that in the New Testament and statements like that from Paul, but I guess the one from 2 Corinthians eleven nine 9 is the most illustrative of Paul's freedom to limit his freedom because of a prevailing critical attitude in the church in Corinth. So in 2 Corinthians 11, here's what he says. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? In other words, I just went ahead and said, okay, you were critical, you were unkind, you were abusive to me, and you're, you, didn't, you had all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't support me. And if, did I sin against you by going ahead and exalting your very, very immature position so that I could preach the gospel of God to you without charge? And what's the answer? Of course I didn't. In verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I, I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. So we just saw what he needed, food and drink, clothing, necessary things, things we talked about all, already. Now catch this. This is what Paul means when he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Mark this. For when the brethren came from Macedonia... They fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Did you catch it? He wasn't taking any support from Corinth because he didn't want to tear up the road to the gospel. But when the church of Macedonia came, what did they do? He took support from them, and they provided for his needs. They did precisely what they were supposed to do. And Paul understood there was no roadblock there, and there was no uh, harbored animosity towards him. And everything that was lacking, they took care of. And Paul accepted that. Now, let's get back to the last portion of verse 15. Because this is really the core of the whole thing. And if you want to know, it really answers the question about Paul's attitude as he dealt with this church. Why, why you've set aside this right that other ministers share in verse 12. Why have you set it aside? Look at verse 15. He says, but I've used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. In other words, I'm not saying one thing and, and hoping for something else. Then he says, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. And we're going to get into that because boasting sounds weird to us and I want you to explain how he's going about this. But Paul really is expressing some great emotion here. Just saying, listen, I want you to understand in the strongest emotional terms I can render, I am not telling you this so you'll start to support me. 
He's made his decision to limit his freedom, and he's perfectly content to be there. He wants to make sure they understand as clearly as he can possibly say it. And then he says to make sure they understand how serious he is. He says, it would be better for me to die than to exercise my right to compensation when he knows that there are people there in Corinth who are having a problem with all of that. Mark it, even though they're wrong. See, they're wrong to hold that position. Even though he's given them eight examples and five principles to show that they're wrong and it's the right thing to do. To help them grow, to help them become mature, to move past the immaturity and past the pettiness and past the dishonor and disrespect. He loves them enough to not let them remain in ignorance in their arrogant attitude. Even though he's not going to take support, he doesn't want to let them sit there in arrogance and, and ignorance. He wants to make sure they come to the right level of maturity. Even though, even if they do, he's still not taking support from them. He wants to make sure they don't stay where they are, see? So even in his love for them, he, you see this compassion, even in his reproof of their position. He's not going to put a hindrance on the gospel. And he loves them enough to give up his right until they grow. And I think you can see that. And that, that most certainly isn't the standard for the church. That's a terrible thing to think about. The way they treated Paul, the way they treated Timothy when he came, just the overall attitude and the carnalness that was there and all the stuff that was going on under the scenes. And then I'll look at verse 16, if you would, and let's, um, let's begin to wrap up. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And the first thing that really pops out of there is, is that whole word boasting. Verse 15 says it as well. It'd be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. So the question really comes up as you get to that passage and Paul begins to tie his argument together. He says, isn't, you know, we think about boasting, isn't boasting pride and isn't pride a sin, right? We use boasting, he's very boastful or whatever. Usually that's a derogatory term, right? Because people are just patting themselves on the back and whatever. And, uh, but boasting can be a sin, but it can also be a righteous act. And here's where we find it in the second category. It just all depends on the reason for the boasting. And that word boast is that kokema. In the scriptures, it's used a number of different positive ways. Boast, an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. You can have confidence in them, a boasting that's confident. What one boasts about, we are what you boast about, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.14, just as you are what we boast about. That's in a good light, right? You boast on us as ministers of the gospel to you. We boast on you as walking with the Lord. See, even in, even in reproof, even in uh, an immature church that's having a very hard time, even with the basics of understanding, he says, listen, we boast about you and you boast about us. That's used in a very positive way. There's, there's a right to boast, a justification for boasting. Uh, the basis for, for uh, the content of one's feelings of legitimate pride, basis uh, knowing something is true because the Lord has made it true. And, and the word is used at least 11 times in the New Testament, and five of those times it's translated rejoicing or rejoice. So I think it gives you a better slant on this word. So when Paul says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, what he's really wanting to point out is something about his ministry uh, that he has contributed. I mean, there isn't much to my ministry, Paul says, that I have anything to do with, but there's one thing that I have a special joy in that I've chosen to do, and that thing is such a cause for rejoicing for me that I'd never give it up. So I think you know where we're going here. Something I rejoice in. That's the thing that Paul says thrills me that I can do. 
This is the thing that blesses me about my ministry. And of course, well, what is it? What, what blesses you, Paul, above all things that you can rejoice in it? So much that you'd rather die than give it up. Look at verse 16. It says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Well, verse 16 tells us what it isn't. It isn't the gospel. He's not boasting because he preaches the gospel. Because I had nothing to do with that. God gave that to me. Then the question could be, well, what about your preaching? And Paul would say, no to that as well. For if I preach, he says, the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I'm under compulsion for woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So it isn't the message and it isn't the ministry of preaching that he can boast on or rejoice in. Paul could say, really, if you think about it, I didn't really have a whole lot of choice in the matter. I'm walking down the road minding my own business on the way to Damascus to abuse some more Christians. And you know, uh, one day I'm killing Christians, the next day I'm preaching the gospel to unbelievers. That really is the sum of my life. You know, Jesus knocked me down in the middle of the road and said, you know, why are you persecuting me? And I said, I have no idea. What do you want me to do? He says, I want you to go and take the gospel and turn people from the darkness to light and from idols to the true God. He's kind of summed it up. He just handed it to me. Uh, the Lord gave me this ministry. There's nothing I really did about that. So there's no boasting there, right? In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, but when God who set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So what he says is this, listen, you know, God set me apart from my mother's womb. He'd already made a decision about me. I didn't really have any, any say in the whole thing. So when he says what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he just means that the facts are, I don't do it if I don't do it, I'm in a lot of trouble, right? I didn't even ask for this, and now I'm stuck, and I really am. Uh, I have no choice about that. And Paul's really referring to something then that he has great joy in. It's something he has freedom to do. So he can't be talking about preaching, and he can't be talking about the gospel, because he has, he has to do those things because he's a bondservant of Christ, and the Lord picked him. And, and we have the same kind of story, and I, because I want to make sure that you understand, this helps Paul wrap this whole thing up. Same kind of story from Jeremiah. I think this is instructive for us. Plus, I think it's encouraging for those who are in the ministry, desiring to do the ministry. You know, I tell young preachers a lot, and, and I would do it more, the more opportunity I had is this. People come, men come out of the seminary, and they have an idea about what the Lord's going to do in their ministry. I mean, everybody has high hopes. They have an idea that the Lord's going to plant me somewhere, and we're just going to build a mega church, and everything's going to be great. We're going to have plenty of money, and, and we're going to be able to do all that, carry out the gospel, and everybody's going to affirm the ministry. And, and here's what I tell them. Listen. That is not the pattern that we have for the New Testament, okay? That's not the pattern. That wasn't Paul's pattern. Here, you could arguably, the best preacher who has ever lived, who wrote 75% of the New Testament, was despised and rejected and, and dishonored constantly, criticized, patronized, just name it. Okay, so here's Paul. He understands his, what he has to do. He's given this charge. He understands God called him from his mother's womb. He understands he's just walking along, minding his own business, on his way to Damascus. The Lord says, all right, that's enough of that. Uh, I'm going to turn this guy around, and I'm going to use him for my own glory. And, and we see the same kind of thing. If you think about Jeremiah chapter 1, you know, he was chosen by God. He had no say in it. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated, I set you apart. Here's what he says to Jeremiah. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Then I said, Alas, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. And the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go and all that I command you, you shall speak. And that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, he was set apart from his mother's womb. The Lord's going to, he's going to be a prophet to the nations. That sounds very promising. A lot of, a lot of good positive things can come out of that, uh, you know. But was it a snuggle fest between him and God? You know, you know, come on, you know, let me give you a noogie. I'm just, it's going to be really great for you. You know, everything's going to be awesome. You know, it's all going to go perfectly. No, not at all. God said, I picked you from your mother's womb. I set you apart. I got a job for you to do. I'm going to give you the words to say. This is what your choice is. Just do it. All that I command you, you shall speak. Oh, well, that'll be a piece of cake, right? For Jeremiah. Let's see. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 7. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. Does the Lord deceive anybody? Does he lie to anybody? No. Well, what's the problem? When the Lord said to Jeremiah, you're going to be a great prophet to the nations, and I'm going to give you all the words you're going to speak, Jeremiah's thinking one thing, and the Lord has something else completely in mind, see? And that's what I tell new pastors. Listen, you can come, and you're only responsible for discharging the word of God, for doing the reading. Read it exegete it, make sure the people understand it and equip for every good work. What they do with that is not your concern. They might hate you. They might rebel against you. They might cast you out. They might disrespect you. And that goes on regularly in churches all across the country and across the world. Instead of honoring, they dishonor. They don't take care of them. All of that. See, and, and people are disillusioned. If you come out thinking everything's going to be rosy like Jeremiah, then you'll have to say, God, you deceived me. I thought everything was going to be great. God didn't deceive anyone. He just called you and said, this is what I want you to do. He says this. You deceived me. I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. What? He had a message of judgment. People didn't want to hear it. They were making fun of him all the time. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. It resulted in their destruction, but he still had to go say it. So was it great? Was it perfect? You know, prophet to the nations. Go get him. No. It was hard. It didn't go the way he thought it was going to go. Then he says this, but if I say I'll not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. Just like what Paul said, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. See, he has a, he has a job to do. He's been given a charge. And I'm weary, he said, of holding it in. I can't endure it for I have heard the whisperings of many terror on every side. Denounce him. Yes, let's denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall and say, perhaps he'll be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. In other words, maybe he'll be wrong and maybe we really will get to deride him and really ride him down to nothing. Maybe all this judgment he's talking about won't come about and so we'll be fine and he'll look stupid. But the Lord, he says, is with me like a dread champion. He wants to stop, but he can't because it's burning up inside of him. But when he gives it out, it just results in the same kind of thing. And there's the Lord right next to him just saying, keep on going, buddy. Keep on going. See, there's no overcoming what he wants me to do, Jeremiah says. I could say I want to quit, and it makes absolutely no difference because he isn't listening. 
And shutting his mouth and saying nothing is more painful than opening it and getting criticized and ridiculed all the time. And then he goes on to say that those who beat on him and criticize him, the Lord's going to take care of. And we know that, see, don't we? We know that. But does it make it easier day to day? Maybe a little bit, knowing, you know, the Lord knows those who are his and certainly the ones who cause trouble in the church constantly or contentious constantly, critical constantly. They might not even be born again and likely they aren't. And the Lord's going to take care of all that and he knows who's are his. But the bottom line is, it's still difficult, isn't it? Day by day. And guys go through this every single week around the world. So Paul's saying the same thing. You know, what do I have to say about it? I mean, I, I have to preach and the message has been given to me. I don't really have any choices there. And in Amos, we have really the same kind of idea. Remember the story, the Lord comes to Amos. He says, hey, I'm calling you as a preacher. You're going to go pastor a mega church and people are going to be flocking to hear what you have to say. You're going to be really famous and lots of money and dressed in really fine clothes and everything's going to be cool. Is that what he said to Amos? Nada. Not exactly. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Here I am just shepherding. The Lord calls me and boom, destruction. I can get about two years of preaching and then it's destruction. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God spoke, and who's resisting a lion? He called me out from shepherding sheep, and he's got me to say something, and I have to say it when he says what I have to do. In Amos chapter 7, verse 15. The Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now listen to this. He even gets a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city, and your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. What does it mean? And you're going to preach all that time and from a human perspective, it's going to accomplish nothing. Your family's going to be ruined. You're going to lose all those people and you yourself aren't even going to die in Israel. And you know, beloved, if you've read missionary biographies, which I have, and I have a ton in my office and I love reading those, you already know this, okay? That there are hundreds of missionaries who have done this very thing. They have gone to foreign soil and their whole family died and they just worked faithfully and in great sorrow. And you know, in the, in the, uh, in the snowflake church age, most people would say, well, you know, they just must not have had enough faith or the Lord must not have wanted them to go there. I mean, how, 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 what a waste of the life because we are so wrapped up in ministry equals prosperity or ministry equals success from the world's perspective. See, ministry has to always equal that. Ministry doesn't ever, hardly ever equal that. And you don't get to see most of the results until long after you're all done. In eternity, most of the time. And so you, you, can't, you can see this and you think, man, that's a tough job for Amos. Yeah, and Jeremiah and Isaiah and every other prophet, if you read through there. 
That's why it's so beneficial to read through your Bible year by year. It really grounds you in the realities of ministry and the struggles that are part of it and what the Lord has desired for you to do because he still says the same thing. See, Still give my message out. Still make it clear to people and maybe they'll just reject it. Maybe they'll laugh at it. They don't think it's that great. Maybe you're sitting in your seat right now and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? This is so stupid. It's precisely what I'm talking about, right? You're answering exactly like these who did in Israel. And if this is the word of the Lord that comes out, you just got to give it out. And it's not your responsibility whether or not people react to it. You just got to make sure it's clear. You're not trying to build yourself. You're not trying to build an image. You're not trying to build a, uh, some kind of mega ministry. You're just being faithful to people. When the Lord puts them in your way, you, you minister to them and you love them and you give them instruction and you reprove them and encourage them and whatever it takes. See, And you just keep doing it over and over and over and over. You're going to preach, Amos. And it won't appear that anyone is ever going to listen to you. And it won't appear that you made any difference at all. But it doesn't matter what you think your mind to do with as I wish. See, and that's it, right? When you minister, you're the Lord's to do with as he wishes. Isn't, isn't it his right? If you're his servant, to do with you as he wishes to do? It's just so hard. To, it's hard to struggle with that, isn't it? We're all wrapped up in the American dream and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you know, we wouldn't have anything if the Lord didn't give it to us. We're going to see that in 1 Timothy 6. But the fact of the matter is we have to make sure we're clear what our real job is. You know, as, as, as a believer, we've got two main important things we're supposed to do, right? Great commission, great commandment, right? Go out, preach the gospel to every person. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It, it was never rescinded. The very basics of living a life for the Lord. Romans 12 says, present your life as a living sacrifice. You try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. See, that's, that's the consistent message of those who belong to Christ. And yet we equate other things with success, right? And there are thousands of missionaries who come home from the field and they didn't come home to any welcome. And nobody said good job except the Lord was cheering, see? And the angels. Because they did what they were supposed to do. And their reward isn't here. It's still to come. See, Love to stand close to Amos sometime. Listen to him talk. In eternity. And I really think, as you think about those two illustrations, we wrap up. This compulsion that Paul speaks about and the calling really experienced by everyone who really is called into the ministry. And modern-day pastors deal with the modern-day diatrophies all the time. And church boards that have no authority in the church and churches that don't honor them, they don't love them, they don't obey them, they don't remunerate them as they should. And if they keep on doing what they're supposed to do and they do it faithfully all that time. Let's wrap up here with Paul's last few thoughts. Paul has some part of his ministry that he can boast about. But it isn't his preaching and it isn't the gospel. See, we just saw that with all those guys, right? That was just given to him. Look at verse 17. For he says, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul says, if I perform this duty God called me to do with the right heart, then God will reward me for that work. And I would draw, of course, your mind back to our study, 1 Corinthians 3, 14. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it has to be revealed by fire and fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. Listen, Paul's not exempt from that evaluation. 
That's the same evaluation that every believer goes through. See? If you're sitting and you haven't done anything, you haven't given your life away for the Christ, listen, you're, you're sitting on the foundation of Christ. If you're born again, you haven't built a single thing that's going to last. Paul's not, he's not exempt. The quality of work is based in part on the motive and the mindset of the worker. So Paul says, if I do this right thing, I know I'm building with gold and silver and costly stone and God will reward me. And if he does his duty with a willing mind, it will meet with a gracious recompense from God. There's no reward for regarding it as drudgery. There's no reward for doing it reluctantly. See, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, shepherd the flock of God among you and do it willingly, not out of compulsion. There's reward with the attitude, not just the effort. If he does it with a willing mind, it's going to meet with a gracious recompense from God. He says, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul says, even if I don't want to do it, or if I'm unwillingly doing it, or with the wrong attitude, it doesn't relieve me of the stewardship, right? Remember Amos? He didn't really want to do it. Remember Jeremiah? You deceived me. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Didn't relieve him of the stewardship. Because I'm going to hold it in. God won't let me hold it in. He's, w- he's with me like a dread champion. I didn't get let off the hook. So whether the duty of the office is done willingly or with reluctance, whether the heart is in it or it's ill-disposed to it, the office holds a trust and a charge from God for which they must be accountable. Listen, it's, it's again our word okinomos, that stewardship. That's where we get the word dis- uh, uh, dispensation. That's the word order, Right? You're ordering the household, the administration of another's property, the Lord's property. Same word we saw using to describe Paul and ministers since that time. So listen, beloved, because this, this includes you. Taking his name and professing to do his business make you accountable at his bar. Did you know that? In other words, you don't get to show up at the, at the Bema Seat judgment and plead your case for why you were so inept or why you had such a bad attitude. You call on the name of Christ. You come to faith in him. You account to him then, finally. It's his bar you are stepped up to. So Paul says, I have something to rejoice in that's my own. And it isn't the gospel because that's from God. And it isn't the preaching because God set me to that task and he hasn't released me from it. And if I do it with the right attitude, God's going to reward me. And if I don't want to do it, I still have to do it because he hasn't released me from the responsibility of his property, just like he didn't release Jeremiah or Amos, see? So the thing he rejoices about and has the right to choose is verse 18. Here it is. We're going to wrap up with this. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so that as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And it just appears that the reward Paul gets is synonymous with what he can rejoice in or what he's able to boast about. And so what is it? Paul says that when I preach the gospel, I can do it free of charge. Paul could say, you know something? God told me to do a lot of things, but he never told me to do that. I got to choose to do that. It's part of the ministry. I set aside my freedom in Christ to receive support from the church and I get to be excited about that privilege. And that is principle number six. Men, as we think about this whole section, as Timothy has had to deal with false prophets and false teachers, Paul says, listen, when you get to the guys who are qualified, when you look at those qualifications from the word, these guys are doing the right job, 
He gave us the principles concerning them. Here's the sixth one. Men in the ministry can choose to not be remunerated for one reason or another. It's certainly their right. And some do. But that's not the norm for the church. Men can do it, but it's not the norm. Paul had to preach. He had to preach the gospel, but he didn't have to preach for nothing. That was his special contribution. And in that, he had special rejoicing. And men in the ministry can choose to do that too, and many do. But it should be their choice and not because they have to. So the reason Paul has covered all of this, beloved, from which we pull such important doctrine about the church's responsibility, and it really helps us understand 1 Timothy 5, 17, and 18 so clearly, because that's just so abbreviated, and people can interpret that however they want. But once you get through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's no way you can interpret that except the way Paul has guided it. And so Paul had much unique insight into the absence of the double honor. He understood what it meant to operate and to, and to give his life to a church that didn't appreciate him, didn't love him, and didn't honor him. So he has certainly a unique perspective to bring it to the church and help the church to be corrected. The Corinthians and believers on down through the ages will know the attitude they ought to have when they consider their responsibility to those who lead them. That's the point. And even though it caused Paul harm, and it was... To his own detriment, Paul considered it something that he could rejoice in doing. That's a great example and a correct example of giving up your rights. And that's what the church needs to understand as well. So that's kind of where we are. And I know that's a lot. I gave you a lot. And I gave you a lot of background. But I think, you know, as I said to First Service, Berean is the kind of church where we have students who are with us just for a short time and they go out and they do ministry and they go to other churches and we get a lot of, uh, we got a lot of student pastors that come through and then they're going out and leading. And, you know, it's important to have this basis because you're going to run into this constantly. It's important to go. You might be sitting on uh, some kind of board or sitting in a congregation sometime and you might be the sole voice that really understands what's supposed to happen and the Lord expects you to speak up. And so we went through this so that you could know that, so you could be equipped and you could have the right heart attitude about it. And there's just so much other things that are such a blessing to us, especially as we think about the Bema seat and, and the responsibility all of us have to serve in such a way that uh, it is not wood, hay, and stubble, but gold, silver, and costly stone, all right? So let's pray, give our time to the Lord here, and, and, our, and we move out into our ministry field as we move out from here. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be here together with this uh, great group. We thank you for the blessing of like-mindedness. We thank you for so many who sit here are so faithful who pray and who give and who put themselves in a position where they can serve other people constantly to their own detriment and to the encro uh, uh, encroding on their own, uh, their time and their schedules. And it just, but they, they know who they serve and they know that they will stand at, at that bar someday. And that's, that's the judgment. That's the one that really matters. And so Father, thank you for those who give willingly and, and give their lives away, and are even downstairs doing it right now with our children, and who came early this morning and did it, and, and are doing it in the back. And, and Lord, we're just very grateful for people who give themselves away like that, support the ministry here, and do it in, in, a, in a sacrificial way, and we know that you always take care of that. Lord, all this is so, is so wonderful. You are at work. And Lord, in, if we've uh, preached this passage and it's hit uh, a sore spot, Father, or if it's... Um, affronted others, I pray uh, that this will be a time when they realize that they can trip over the stone which is Christ and be broken. They certainly don't want it to fall on them. 
So, Father, I pray that you'll correct our own heart and begin even new today uh, to change trajectory. If we call ourselves yours, then let's act like it. Let's be the testimony we're supposed to be in discharging the great commandment and the great commission. So, for all these things, you're at work, I know. And when we open your word and we teach it, then it goes out in power and returns doing what it was supposed to do. So we trust you with all that. And we know that we have not even begun to touch all the ways that you work. So, Lord, we thank you that you're at work in our midst. Thank you that we can be uh, those who are waiting for your return and found doing what we're supposed to do. And even today, changing trajectory, we might do it better. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. And all God's people said, Amen.